You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. There's frames in every part of society, right? We live in a socially constructed reality, meaning that there is the objective world that exists, right? That is like stones, air, H2O, right? But then there is a world that is layered on top of it, of social agreement. So the fact that money is valuable is a frame. A lot of our relationships are built on frames. Like, you know, the dreaded friend zone, right? Is it just a frame that you're more of a friend than a lover? And a lot of times, frames don't even just work in like context of a conversation. They're like the roles that people bestow upon you. Um, any type of coronation process is to, like, have you ever been to a graduation? Like a whole graduation is a frame that what we're doing is really special. But what you really did was go to college you fucked off for four years and you studied something and got some grades, but they make it Don't seem- get me started on this. Like yeah, could, right, yeah, yeah. The, the podcast could be here in a completely different direction for three hours. And and we'll get more into what frame control is and, and how you structure this book, which I find very interesting from a writing point of view, a, a writing of self-help point of view. But just in that specific example, and, and the friend zone example. So the friend zone I'm very familiar with. I've been, I've lived inside the friend zone most of my life. 
So all of these are situations where there's no real rules and there's kind of like fictional man-made rules. There's sort of like, you know, status hierarchies. Like, oh, in a, in a workplace, someone who's a VP, a vice president of the corporation might be have higher status than an assistant vice president. But you go outside the corporation, there's no hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of taking advantage of shifting hierarchies depending on context as well. Most definitely. And just cultivating awareness of somebody can just feel more powerful than they are because they have a, a badge, right? Like everybody, you know, a mall cop has a badge and he's meant to look as similar to a cop as possible, even though he doesn't really have authority over you in the situation. He can't touch you, none of that. But he, you feel like he has authority. And so one of the things that Brendan and I really wanted to lay out is, number one, looking for what are you buying into? Right. A lot of times when we give someone power over us, there's usually a reason, right? Maybe it's a very pretty person. Maybe it's a very tall person. And we feel ourselves suffocating in a certain way. And And, and why are we suffocating? Because we grew up thinking, oh, for the past thousand occurrences, tall people have intimidated me or or someone who looks better than me has intimidated me or someone who has a higher has more money has intimidated me. And so we start to, to react in these old ways instead of. Um, kind of being aware, like, oh, I'm reacting in an old way, and this is an opportunity to practice what Bill's saying about frame control. Exactly. What we're teaching you is kind of to cultivate an awareness within conversations to what is actually happening. I got Bill Petit on the podcast to talk about his new book, co-written with Brendan Lemon called The Power Bible, but also we're going to talk about, Bill, I almost didn't want to do, I kind of didn't want to do this podcast actually, and I'll, I'll tell you why. This, I feel like, as opposed to all the BS self-help books I read all the time or, you know, that people push on me all the time, this, you're, you're describing like a real superpower here. Like, I almost want to keep these techniques for myself and not tell anybody. Like, I was sitting next to Robin, while I was reading the book, and I was going to say to her at different points, oh, see, here's what Bill says in the Power Bible about uh, what you should do when you're in an argument with a spouse. I'm like, no, I better not tell her this one because I'm going to use this technique. It 100% comes back to bite you where like I've been in fights with um, girlfriends and they've been like, are you using one of your frame control tactics right now? I'm like, oh, man, I knew I shouldn't have sent that essay I wrote. <laughs> well, well, uh, and and also the other, but I'm so excited also to t- talk to you about this because I recognize, first off, thank you for mentioning me several times in the book. Uh, and I have some take on at least one of those uh, stories that you mentioned. But uh, uh, so many, so much of this I recognize from conversations you and I have had since, what, 2015, where I actually made specific use of your tactics. And we'll describe what this book is about in a second. But we'll just, I, I specifically made use of tech. We've, we've spoken hundreds of hours on the phone about business situations, relationship situations, social situations, other types of sales, negotiations, everything. And you were always thinking like, you know, if you say this, this person's going to probably say either this, 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 and then you have to say this, this, it's almost like a chess game. And you were always so dead on right. And so now I see it all in this come together in this book form. And I know these techniques work. So, so I just want to describe, let me describe, I I know you haven't been speaking. Let me describe at a 10,000 foot level, what this book is about. And you could, uh, correct me along Mm -hmm. the way. So, so it's called the power Bible, but it's really about what you 
call frame control. And the idea is, is that in mid to high stakes situations, like let's say you're asking your boss for a raise or you're in an argument with a loved one or uh, you're in a, a sales pitch or an, an important negotiation, or even if you're at a party uh, or you know trying to meet someone in a bar, one person has the frame and the other people usually don't. And the person with the frame has so many opportunities to succeed in those situations that, you know, high stakes turn into high reward. Most definitely. Like it's, it's really like determining the rules that everybody else plays with within conversation. And we so tacitly buy into other people's frames and we don't know the implication, right? Like when we attribute the amount of debts that Stalin caused, he didn't personally do those things, but he manifested the power and the frame within himself to make people kill their family and kin. And that's an extreme example. But you have to remember, like a guy like Stalin was a peasant and he grew up to be the most powerful man in the world through understanding some of these tactics. And if people around him had understood some of these things that he was doing, they might have put up walls. They might not have been as easy to buy in. And that's an extreme example, but we have these and happen all the time. Well, and, and, and in that example specifically, it almost seems like Machiavellian. And there, there is components of this book that feel that way, but you address that as well. You know, you have, uh, and we'll get to this later, you have sections on like frame, frame addiction or, you know, using this for the wrong purposes probably won't work out for you the way you think. But, uh, uh, you know, you give this one example of what frame control is, and it's not a very... Um, it, it is a real world example, but it's not something that happens every day. So I want to take this example and cause it's a perfect example of, of what you mean, but then describe some other examples. So you give an example where let's say you and Brendan just watched, just witnessed a murder and, uh, uh, the police come afterwards and ask you what happened. And you say, well, that guy just killed that other guy. Person A just killed person B. And that's what you say. And then Brendan says, well, person A was in self-defending, was defending himself, so had to kill person B. So whoever, so this is a great example where whoever has the stronger frame, you or Brendan um, in front of the cop, that's high stakes in that someone's life is either gonna, like person A is either gonna go to jail for the rest of his life or is gonna be a free man. So that's the importance of frame control. Only one of you can have the frame in that situation. The cop's only going to believe one of you say, and, uh, uh, you know, in, in an extreme case and the consequences of who has the frame is life changing for person a. And so, so the same thing might happen though, if someone's asking for, uh, uh let's say just a thousand dollar raise from their boss, they either have the frame and no, no boss wants to give, you know, an employee in, in, in their corporation, uh, a raise. So either the employee has good frame and is able to easily get the raise or the boss has the frame and is easily able to not give the employee a raise and the employee will feel good about it. So what's another example say of like everyday situations? I mean, um, a lot of our relationships are built on frames, right? Like a lot of like, you know, the dreaded friend zone, right? Is it just a frame that you're more of a friend than a lover? And a lot of times frames don't even just work in the like context of a conversation. They're like the roles that people bestow upon you. So there, like there's frames in every part of society, right? We live in a socially constructed reality, meaning that there is the objective world that exists, right? That is like stones, air, H2O, right? But then there is a world that is layered on top of it of social agreement. 
So the fact that money is valuable is a frame. And it's a frame. There's a reason why there's a symbolic process for money being valuable because it gives the frame of importance to money, the sacredness of money. That is the reason why it says, in God, we trust on money. So it's bestowed with this kind of big importance, this big procession. No, real, no one really knows how money is made. It comes from all these different Byzantine ways. There's these weird stamps in it. And that lets you know that it is something of value. Um, any type of coronation process is to, like, have you ever been to a graduation? Like a whole graduation is a frame that what we're doing is really special. But what you really did was go to college you fucked off for four years and you studied something and got some grades, but they make it Don't seem- get me started on this. Like, yeah, I right. Yeah, yeah. If the podcast could veer in a completely different direction for three hours. But it, it is, they do all of these things to make it symbolically seem important. And uh, uh, the more you recognize, and one of the first things that you asked me to do the first time we hung out, the first time I did this podcast was you said, I should go up and ask whether I could get something for cheaper. And so when I left, I just walked into CVS. It's like, hey, can I get this for a little bit less? And the guy just found a coupon for the thing and- Get, got me a discount. Right, because, because, uh, uh, and, and we'll get more into what frame control is and, and how you structure this book, which is, which I find very interesting from a writing point of view, a, a writing of self helps point of view. But just in that specific example, and, and the friend zone example. So the friend zone I'm very familiar with. I've been, I've lived inside <laughs> the friend zone most of my life. And you describe it in this book as like what, an example of a covert contract. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, the, per, the let's say it's a guy and a girl. The guy in the friend zone has this covert contract and maybe the woman is aware or not aware of it, but he thinks if he's just nice and friendly and so on, the, the contract is supposedly that eventually it will it will turn romantic. And the 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 woman may or may not be aware of this covert contract and your your point is for a lot of a lot of the things that we just sort of assume and live by are kind of rule man-made rules of society or parents or whatever status hierarchy you belong to. And they're not real rules, but then you use this example in the store. So I said to you, go into any store, go into like a deli, order a coffee, and then when he charges you a dollar, say, Hey, can I have 10% off? Can I pay 90 cents? And see what they say. And your point there was is that. We normally have a contract that in a store, if someone says, oh, the price of this coffee is a dollar, we hand over a dollar. But your point is, is that a lot of these rules, even rules that we think are really like just carved in stone are very bendable. You're not saying break the rules, but you're saying you can use frame to bend as far as possible in these rules. And when there's gray areas, like in a deli, as opposed to let's say, I don't know where, where it might not be bendable. Like in a bookstore, you can't really, in Barnes and Noble, you can't negotiate the price of a book. But in a deli, you might be able to negotiate the price. Uh, it might be bendable or it might be a little bit more, there's no hard and fast rules about pricing. Uh, wh whoever has a stronger frame can use it to their advantage to, to get more items for the dollar. Most definitely. And the, the key difference between the deli and Barnes and Noble is nobody in Barnes and Noble has the authority to make things cheaper because the books are set price by publishers and like corporate. It's like beyond, it's not the manager's job to make price. But when you're at the deli, usually the person who has the authority is maybe one level up or maybe it's just the person at the cashier owns the place. And so they have the authority in that moment to make the price malleable. And so a lot of times the people who have the strongest frames are people who aren't present. That's why corporations have a really strong frame because they're not present. It's like spiritually passed down. And so no one there has the authority to negotiate on the price. Whereas if you're at a car lot, you have to just go and talk to the guy who 
the dealership's boss. And he's like, yeah, that could work, you know, and it's negotiable. Or, or, or you know, it, it seems like things are negotiable when uh, it's a philosophical question. So in the deli or in any store, in any retail transaction, um, you know, there's a saying, the customer's always right. But that's actually a principle that's always under debate. Sometimes the customer is not always right. Sometimes you say no to the customer. And so this is always under the debate between management and the customer. And you're kind of taking advantage of the fact that there's not a hard and fast answer to who is always right by using what you call frame control and the techniques of frame control, which we'll describe in a second, um, to, to make that question go more in, in your direction. So it's the same thing. So I just want to say your background, which is, you know, uh, uh, since I've known you, you've been a lawyer, a dating coach, a comedian, probably other things. <laughs> and every one of those, and, and Brendan Lemon, who you co-wrote this with, has been a, a salesman in, in many different jobs. So these are all situations that are mid to extremely high stakes where, you know, whoever, where, where what you're calling frame control is extremely important to see the outcome. So like when you're a lawyer, there's no hard and fast rule that the defense always wins or the prosecutor always wins. So you've got to use frame control to make sure the jury is is listening to you more than the, the other lawyer, the opposing side's lawyer. In sales, one side does the sale or rejects the sale. In asking someone out, one side says yes or says no. And so all of these are situations where there's no real rules and there's kind of like, fictional man-made rules. There's sort of like, you know, status hierarchies, like, oh, in a, in a workplace, someone who's a VP, a vice president of the corporation might be, have higher status than an assistant vice president, but you go outside the corporation, there's no hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of taking advantage of shifting hierarchies depending on context as well. Most definitely. And just cultivating awareness of somebody can just feel more powerful than they are because they have a, a badge, right? Like everybody, you know, a mall cop has a badge and he's meant to look as similar to a cop as possible, even though he doesn't really have authority over you in the situation. He can't touch you, none of that. But he, you feel like he has authority. And so one of the things that Brendan and I really wanted to lay out is, number one, looking for what are you buying into? Right. A lot of times when we give someone power over us, there's a, usually a reason, right? Maybe it's a very pretty person. Maybe it's a very tall person. And we feel ourselves supplicating in a certain way. And, and, and why are we supplicating? Because we grew up thinking, oh, I've, for the past thousand occurrences, tall people have intimidated me or, or someone who looks better than me has intimidated me or someone who has a higher, who has more money has intimidated me. And so we start to, to react in these old ways instead of, um, kind of being aware, like, oh, I'm reacting in an old way, and this is an opportunity to practice what Bill's saying about frame control. Exactly. What we're teaching you is kind of to cultivate an awareness within conversations to what is actually happening. Because there are times where you're like, I don't know why I went along with that for so long. But the thing about being in somebody else's frame, and how I describe frame is the art of controlling perception, right? Um, that's why propaganda, all these other things is about controlling perception. And in a moment, it's very malleable. In a conversation, it's very malleable. And how you control that, how people are viewing something that you're doing is very important. And when you're talking to maybe like somebody taller, right? You're like, oh, like they're looking down on me. This is kind of like a, like you, you don't even pick up on oh, I'm agreeing to things I wouldn't usually agree to. And one of the things that Jordan B. Peterson says and a video that really moved me was stop saying things that make you weak. Well, first you have to understand what are the situations that are compelling you to say things against your own self-interest? Because a lot of frame control is reflexive. A lot of times we reflexively 
are who we are. And that's why it's so hard to change because you're like, oh, naturally in a situation, I just defer someone to someone else's authority. And we want you to question that. Why am I deferring? What is the feeling and sensation that going on in my body so that you don't end up signing contracts with people in, metaphorically within conversation that you don't want to cash and end up living in a prison of a life that you don't want? Yeah, you say, you say in the book, uh, and this is really important, um, this is the one way to know that you're in, you're in the control of someone else's frame is if you have to spend more time convincing them. So like, if I say, uh, Bill, you're a sexist racist and you say, uh, no, I'm not. I have friends who are this, this, I have transgender friends. Yeah. I, I, my dad's black. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, well, if, so like, if you're, if you find yourself just reacting and convincing someone then chances are you have the weaker frame. And the more you say, the more you try to convince them, the weaker your frame becomes. So what would you say in that case? If someone like makes some universal broad judgment on you that you know is not true and you want to combat it and, and maybe it's even in front of you, so it's in front of other people, so it's high stakes, what would you say? So first I want to make this very clear to everybody listening. The reason why convincing is a weak frame is because it is contingent on their acceptance of what you say. So it gives you them all the power. Now what you say is, look, I'm not trying to convince you, which basically takes it out of their hands, right? You're not looking for them to basically validate what you're getting ready to say. Then you make your point like, hey, and what I would say in that instance is like, look, if you're labeling me this early in the conversation, you don't want to have common ground with me. And I'm not going to continue a conversation where someone is going to belittle me and label me rather than interact with my ideas. So, so you're, you're basically labeling their labeling. Exactly. So we'll talk about labeling in, in, in more, but, but so, so one technique is to basically say you're doing this and it's not fair in this context. So that's, that's one technique. Uh, another one is, and you talk about uh, humor to, to deframe somebody. And uh, uh, it reminds me of, of the rule, the first rule of improv, which is to say yes and, you know, to kind of increase the humor without creating confusion or conflict in the scene. So, you know, in this case, maybe you could say, yeah, I'm a racist and sexist, which is why, of course, um, you know, darker than you and, you know, wh whatever else you would say, I don't know. But yeah, well, so so when we call humor, and I go into this, we had, um, so the book actually was twice as long because we went into exact situations where we're like, this is kind of getting petty a little bit. But with humor, you it's a dangerous way to take back frame. What I call is it's high risk, high reward. Because whenever you're in a situation where you don't have frame, and you know this from doing stand-up, is when you're bombing, it's harder to be funny. And we can bomb in conversations. We can feel like that. So... And if the joke doesn't work, you actually spiral down deeper. But if it does work, you get everybody else on your side. Because when someone is laughing, they're basically giving a physical indicator that they are responding positively to what your idea is. They're tacitly accepting it. That's why when in comedy clubs, it's the best clubs, you can't see anybody. Because you can't, because a lot of people look to other people for approval of like, oh, is it okay to laugh at that? That's something that a lot of people say. And the reason why they say that is because when you laugh at that, you're saying, I kind of get it. And so that's why humor is really powerful. But we also, and this part didn't make it in the book, but I put it in my course was there are people like who are really funny who kind of we all hate because we can't be mad at them, but they're constantly insulting us. So we talk about how to basically mitigate the damage that they do in a certain environment by saying like, hey, dude, like grow up. Like, I, I do, I get it. You're funny, but like, we need to get work done. But I feel like in this one-on-one -on -one situation, I'm thinking specifically of this situation where someone's trying to call you out and um, it's not in a party where, mm. you know, you're feeling kind of 
awkward and there's like a bigger, funnier guy yeah. who's everybody's laughing and you're feeling off to the corner and feeling insecure. And then you try, and like in the, you even mentioned, there's like a typical scene in the movies where someone tries to say something funny and everyone just stares at them yeah, and they 100%. get even weaker. So it's just like, you're right. That's an example of like high risk, high reward. Like if you fail at it, you're, you're more in the corner. But in this one-on-one -on -one situation, I say, Bill, you're being so blah, blah, blah. And, and, and you kind of take this improv technique or humor technique. Yeah, but, or yeah, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and turn it into humor. I feel like that's a little easier in one-on-one. -on -one. It's easier in one-on-one, -on -one, but one of the things that you always want to be aware of is what is the meta frame? So if you're at work and somebody says this, like, so like you have to think about wh what are the stakes at where you're at, right? So if you're in a casual conversation, someone's like, you're, you're like a racist. Like, yeah, man, I'm so racist. That's why I got me a black dad. Like, you know, like it, then, then you're, it's something like, kind of like fun. There, but if you're at a, a job where an accusation like that is is actually serious, you have to basically meet it with basically the surroundings or the surrounding context, which someone is labeling you that um, with that label. So it's all about like, you have to always understand what is the meta frame? Why is, why are you there? What is the context of the situation? What is the social game being played? And, you know, a lot of times, you know, um, I do this in reflection, not in the moment, right? But the more you reflect on it, the more you're like, oh, you know, this is why this was, it becomes more and more automatic. So I'm not expecting people to listen to this podcast and be like, oh, the meta frame is this. And so therefore do insult C, you know, but when you understand like, hey, like you're saying this to me, like, let's say I'm at law school and someone labels this like, labels me like that. I have to shut that down because if that gets around, then all of a sudden, I'm losing out on hiring opportunities. I'm getting locked out of clubs, all of these other things. I'm getting a bad reputation. Your reputation starts at law school. So if someone calls me a racist and a misogynist, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm not even going to entertain this discussion because you, you're basically saying you're not, number one, you're not listening to me. And the fact that you're labeling me so early means that you're not trying to understand me that creates a completely different thing. And it makes them sit with it. It makes them feel like the bad guy leaving the conversations. Well, and I love how, it's, so I'm, I'm always going to interrupt, yeah. sorry. I, I love how even with that response, you, you have frame control techniques that they could then do, which is they could pull back even further and say, listen, it's important for us to, you know, it's important. If you're going to go out and be a lawyer, because let's say this is happening in law school, if you're going to go out and being a lawyer, it's important for us to know kind of your philosophical beliefs about, you know, the law on these impo very important issues. So they're even going out further and, and labeling that you're trying to avoid these important issues. Most definitely. We call it the zoom out technique. And basically what that is, is when in any moment when you're arguing with somebody, you can either say they're getting lost in details, which is zooming in, right? So if they're getting really technical, all of us have had those moments where you're talking to someone and then they start using a lot of big words within the conversation that you don't really understand. And you're like, you, all you have to say is like, hey, you're losing the force for the trees, man. Like we need to blah, blah, blah. And you try to keep the conversation higher level, right? But let's say they're zooming out too much and they're like, oh, this is like an existential thing and blah 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 then you can zoom out on this and be like hey like you know uh, that when that person zooms out you're like oh well actually it does matter in the greater context and one part of the book that we have in there is using logical fallacies both as a weapon and a shield so like that, for instance call me a racist and a misogynist that's an ad hominem you're attacking my character not my arguments right and so you're like you label it you label hey that's an ad hominem you're attacking my character you're not attacking the merit of my arguments and what you're talking about is like no and you're in this instance your character matters right so if like someone's defending trump and or someone's attacking trump and they're like oh hey like you know he's a racist and a misogynist right and 
Um, someone's like, oh, that's ad hominem. You're not actually attacking his platform. It's like, well, if he's going to be president of the United States, it matters whether or not that is his character, right? So you double down on that part as kind of a shield. Yeah, so, and and by the way, I feel like we haven't even started the podcast yet. Like, <laughs> this is just all kind of stuff peripheral to, to, I mean, this is all in the book, but it's almost like we just get six chapters in the book. But I just want to, I want to say too, what I, what, what I appreciate about the book is that a lot of these self-help books that I see are based on scientific research over, let's say, one aspect of life. So I'm going to make up the name of a book. I don't even know if this is a real book or not. Let's say there's a book called The Power of Consistency. So someone might say, hey, if you do the same single routine every single day, that will make you better in life. And here's the research. Like if you eat your meals at the same time every day, if you, you'll digest better, if you meditate at the same time every day, you'll be more calm and you'll live long. So, so there's that kind of self-help book, which is um, just very simple techniques and uh, research-based, but, but not coming from the person's experience that much. And so I find them to be not that useful for living life, living a better life. And then there's the kind of... Uh, uh, and, and they usually just focus on one thing, like consistency, as opposed to the fact that life is complicated and sometimes you can be consistent, sometimes you can't and so on. Uh, and then there's the kind of self-help books where I feel just the advice is very surface and, then, and I'm not criticizing them. Like for instance, I think Robert Cialdini's book, Influence is a great book about in very specific situations, how to put together a message that persuades people. So he uses techniques like social proof saying, hey, all your friends are doing it, maybe you should do it. He uses techniques like authority. Hey, uh, uh, you know, you're, this, this, you know, David Beckham's doing it, works for him, you should probably do it. You know, uh, he, he uses reciprocity, like I gave you this, so you should, you know, reciprocate. And, but it's like kind of this very simple tool chest of six or seven items that do work. If you're making like an ad campaign or a, or a copywriting campaign or an email marketing campaign, these techniques work. But what you're, what I appreciate with yours, and this this is the, the important part, is that you don't even begin talking about how to get frame control until you discuss the personal issues, personal frame, like your inner frame. Like you have to have strong frame control over your own bad tendencies before you can even hope to have frame control in these high stakes situations. Like if you don't respect yourself, then how are you gonna be able to possibly have any kind of frame control over a boss that is just domineering and you know making you feel inferior and so on. And you and the whole first third or fourth of the book is, is how to get a personal frame. So I think that's I think that's really important. I think a lot of these self-help books miss that and miss the techniques for getting that. Like it's it's great to talk about, oh, everybody could be an entrepreneur and you just need to like do these, this, 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 this. But hey, if someone's just feeling insecure all the time or if they haven't dealt with their personal issues, they're never going to succeed as an entrepreneur. Most definitely. And we, we call the five pillars of inner frame within the book. And we begin with self-respect. And a lot of times I think self-respect gets thrown around, but people don't understand why we respect things. We respect things because, um, and the way I broke it down is that um, if I told you guys I went to Harvard, you guys would have some form of implicit respect for me. You'd be like, oh, wow, that's a smart guy. But if you found out the reason I attended Harvard was because my parents wrote a $15 million check to purchase a new building, all of a sudden that respect vanishes. But why? I still went to the school. And the reason why is because you no longer perceive what I did as being difficult, 
right? But it's not simply just doing difficult things, right? Let's say I see James, he's picking up trash on the side of the road, like down in Soho. You saw me this, this morning? I, yeah, yeah. I didn't think any, I and was I, in disguise. Right, and and I was like, wow, like, you know, James is just like, you know, he's, he's out there, he really cares about the community. It's really cold and he's doing this. But then I find out James is doing this only because he was mandated by the courts. And um, then I'd be like, I mean, it, I, it's not under his own volition, so I lose. I don't have as much respect for the difficulty of the action, even though it's still difficult. And how we describe it is respect is garnered by doing difficult things under your own volition. And it builds more self-authority. Self-authority is your ability to tell yourself to do something. You've had uh, David Goggins and um, Jocko Willink on this podcast, and um, I've met both of them, and they are guys who have lots of self-respect. They, if they tell themselves to do something, whether it's wake up at 3.30 in the morning, run 200 miles, they're going to do it. But they, they couldn't, you can't just wake up and do that. You have to build self-respect over time by constantly finding difficult things to do under your own volition and it builds an upward cycle, but it also works in the negative. I used to be a drug addict. And when you're a drug addict, you just slide down the other way. You lose respect for yourself because doing drugs is easy and you can't even get yourself to do the right things because you don't respect yourself enough to do those things. And it's a cycle. So let's, what drug were you addicted to? So cocaine was my drug of choice. So, so, so let's say you go out all night, uh, you know, at parties and you're doing cocaine or whatever. And then the next day you're wiped out, right? Like you have no dopamine left, no energy left. So now suddenly you're not doing anything with your life. So you lose even more self-respect. So you go to drugs to fill that hole and it kind of cycles. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of issues of self-respect or, or, or all these things tend to cycle into worse unless you're actively dealing with them. Exactly. And the thing is self-respect replenishes on a daily basis. So like, let's say you wake up early, you're getting everything done. It's easier to get more stuff done when you start off the day on the right foot, right? Brian Tracy says the um, beginning of the day is the rudder of the day. Um, but when, let's say the day you woke up, it's at noon and you're just like, you can't get yourself to even do things you want to do. And that's because your self-respect for that day is low. And so what you have to constantly be reproving to yourself by doing difficult actions is basically carrying on this process. And a difficult action is saying no to people and sticking to it. A lot of people can say no, but sticking to that no is hard. And so part of your frame begins with building boundaries with other people, but it's very hard to enforce those boundaries when you don't respect yourself. And you, that, that's so it's a big part of the thing. The other thing we talk about is self-acceptance, which is usually conflated with self-respect. But self-acceptance is basically like, do I feel like I deserve to be here, right? In a social, what, what things are coming up in your head before you go talk to somebody higher status than you? Are you like, yeah, I should be able to talk to them because I'm me. Or are you like, oh, they wouldn't want to talk to me. Like, I'm not even wearing the right kind of clothes. Like, So what's the situation where you have self-respect but don't have self-acceptance? Um, So somebody who is very disciplined, who is, you know, basically an Olympian or whatever, but then can't socialize with people because they're afraid of what people might think about them. So let's take, take an example. Like, like, by the way, David Goggins and, and Jocko Willing are great examples. Those guys have written essentially what you can call self-help books, but again, not based on science, but based on their experiences. Jocko has, has led men into war and, and, and he wrote a great book, uh, several great books, but my favorite among them is right now is Extreme Ownership, also was a discipline through freedom. Mm. Uh, David Goggins uh, wrote Can't Hurt Me and he's, he, he went from being 300 pounds overweight, uh, uh, unhappy in every aspect of his life to being maybe the most disciplined ultra marathon guy on the planet. And, and these are, are two great examples. Um, but yeah, so you could imagine like David Goggins is, has so much self-respect, so much knows what he wants out of life and how to grow and how to personally improve, improve. But you could imagine him saying, "Ugh, I don't really want to, um, get this award. 
you know, I'd rather be marathoning. There's other people who are out for the awards. And yeah, well, he, the first time he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, he was like, I had to hype myself up for two hours to get in here and speak, right? Whereas a comedian who, you know, like, who, who has done nothing of that sort can walk in there and be like, yeah, you know, and talk about whatever on there. And it's just like very, they're all things for us to work on. And a lot of this stuff comes from and um, is our conditioning and we're conditioned by society. And in the, in the book, I got really personal and I didn't know how people would take it. I talked about how being a black Indian guy, there's a lot of narratives that I've subconsciously taken in that have limited me in the narratives I told myself of what I was worthy for in situations. And I, there were never come up with like, oh, I'm inferior. I feel inferior in this situation. It was in the subtext of why I would do something or why I wouldn't go for something. And so what you have to do is you have to take an active role in conditioning yourself within these within these spaces. And I actually... Yeah. But, 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 I, I always interrupt. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'll, I'll stop. But I want to focus on what you just said. Black Indian community. What were the narratives that were... Uh, artificial narratives that were holding you back? What were like five of them? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side -side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? 
ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. What were the narratives that were holding you back? What were like oh. five of them? So the, these were the two biggest ones in my life that, um, so in Indian culture, it is very bad to have dark skin. You will never see a celebrity in India come out with dark skin from Bollywood because they hate darkness. And some of my family members would say things like, oh, you'd be so handsome if you weren't so dark. And I really internalized this. And I really thought it was impossible for me to be handsome and desirable um, with dark skin. And so I had to go through, and I call it going on your own advertising campaign, and I had to make up narratives of why I think I, I, like, I love my skin. And you, a lot of people say you can do this just once and accept yourself as if it's one moment. One moment that you get rid of a lifetime worth of anxiety and self-loathing that you say, oh, now I accept myself. No, you have to constantly condition yourself. So I go in the mirror, and Brendan laughs about this. I get naked from the mirror, and I go through each part of my body, and I talk about how I love that part of myself, but I also get really crazy into narrative. I'm like, I love my skin because it's like chocolate. I got the same skin tone as Michael Jordan. You know, like my dad has this. And I get really into the storytelling of that because all advertising is, all these conditioned frames are just stories that we bought into. And so you have to take time to build up your own story, your own advertising campaign, your own movie within those moments. And so I did that. And then another thing was with height. So I'm 5'9", and in college, I was seeing a girl, and she was like, Will, you're just a little bit too short. And until that point, I thought my height was fine. I loved it. I fit in every chair. Um, I w it was great. Planes uh, are no problem. Planes were no problem. First class, I don't need it. You know, I, I had space and coach. Let's not go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But then, um, she, then when she said that, the whole world grew like eight inches, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I felt so inferior. So then I went through the process, and I was like, the average height of a Navy SEAL is 5'9". Napoleon crowned himself, you know, like I—, I 
built up a whole narrative around that thing and appreciating myself and not diminishing anybody else. A lot of people try to build up their frame by diminishing. You'll see this with a lot of racist groups. They'll be like, oh yeah, I'm so great because others are bad. It's like, no, you just want to learn how to appreciate yourself and build that context of appreciation for the parts of yourself. Because here's the thing is we don't accept ourselves or not accept ourselves. We don't accept parts of ourselves. And so what you have to do is you have to work on accepting those parts of yourselves and what I call your immutable characteristics, the things that are fundamental to who you are, where you're from. You're never going to be from anywhere else. You're going to be from where you're from, your your race, other things like that, and really practice those things because those are with you for life. Now, the mutable characteristics, things that you feel shame for, like, oh, I don't feel like you know I'm overweight and I don't like it, change it. Yeah, it's, it's less work to basically just go to the gym and change that than to do the mental gymnastics of trying to accept something that you know you can change. Right, so so I wanna unpack this a little bit. So, and, and by the way, in terms of building your inner frame, which is absolutely critical to frame control in every other sense, and, and, and it's the key to the, the rest of this book, uh, you say there are, there, are, there are five pillars that uh, house your inner frame, respect, acceptance, conditioning, outcome independent and context. We'll talk a little about each, but with, with respect, there's two things I noticed. One is, um, the same techniques you use to, or the same ways you respect other people you have to use for yourself as well. So you, like you said, you wouldn't respect me if you thought, uh, uh, I was being, I've committed a crime. And I was being court ordered to clean up the community. You would have less respect. So, and, and that leads you to say you respect people who are doing difficult things of their own volition, that means you have to do, to have self-respect, you have to do things of your own volition. And then this is related. You also mentioned how there are some things that you, you have to recognize and be self-aware that some things you can't change and, and, and some things that you can. The importance of that is you don't want to be delusional. So for instance, you don't want to say, well, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm five, nine, if I want to, I could play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be delusional. Instead, you have to find, you know, you can't change your height. So you have to find the, 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 you have to find and constantly remind yourself and reprogram yourself to, to, to be aware that five, nine is not only fun, good, but there could be great advantages being five, nine versus seven foot two or whatever. Uh, so, so, and then, and then that allows you to say, oh, but I also wake up at noon every day. I could maybe improve by waking up at 9 a.m. and going to the gym and improving my looks in ways that I can control or improving my health in ways that I can control and, and so on. And that's a, a difficult thing of your own volition. So I think those are two, the, 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 the using the same, same techniques to, that you use to respect others on yourself is important. And the clearly defining what's immutable, unchangeable, and the things that are changeable and focusing on those to avoid being delusional is important. Exactly. And what you have to understand is that you will never be society's ideal. No matter who you think is society's ideal, they're not. And we have this kind of avatar of what we imagine society wants us to be, but it is a fiction and it is not real. And so when you, we tend to buy into other people's um, standards a lot. And when we try to buy into those standards of that society is placed on what you need to be, you're not creating your own standards. And that's a big part of self-acceptance is living up to your own standards. You have to take the time and be like, what is a standard for the character that I'm trying to construct? Because a person who's trying to be a comedian is going to use their time a lot differently than a person who's trying to be a doctor. So you have to have a good way of evaluating how to respect yourself and stuff like that. But you don't want to take what I call the template frames of society where it's like, go to this school, Blah, 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 be this, be that, because you're never going to be those things. And honestly, yeah, this is a great point. Like, so, so what are like, there's, there's 
what school did you go to? There's what job do you have? There's how much money do you have? There's how attractive you or your spouse are. There's, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know. There's probably other ones depending on the context, but those are like some, some of the big ones. There's also how fancy are your possessions, but that's related to how much money you have. That's signaling how much money you have. Uh, 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 and then what's really important here though, is how, what, what questions do you ask yourself to start building your own set of unique values, independent of society that you could then use as the gauge to build your self-respect? So one, um, this would actually, I did whenever I was in Chicago and I did my Ted talk was I asked myself, what would someone who's trying to be a famous stand-up comedian do? And so I, I had a vision of what I wanted to be. And then I committed to the character that was going to basically make that happen. And I think it's really important that you kind of, because a lot of people, I would just say get started because a lot, a lot of times, sometimes you can be so low that you, you can't even get an authentic image of what you want because even our authentic image of what we think we want is populated by societies. Like I remember in law school, I wanted to transfer to go to Harvard so I could be an academic and a lecturer at Harvard. That was not actually what I wanted. I did not find the law that intellectually fascinating. I just wanted the aesthetic of somebody who was a professor. And in ways I do that, I coach people on frame, but it was so perverted by where I was at that I was coming up with all these things I didn't think I actually wanted. So what I'd say is actually just begin your journey and start moving forward before you start get, like being like, what do I want? Because a lot of times people try to say what their life is going to be at the beginning. It's like, dude, you don't even know. Just start gaining a skill, get some respect and live honestly for a bit. This is really important. I think, I think a lot of uh, self-help and motivational stuff misses this. And, and I've written about this as well. You can't think yourself into success. You can't think yourself into figuring what you want. Like basically you can't figure what you want, which implies thinking instead mm -hmm. of doing. You can only try lots of things. Like you say, try to move forward in various different ways. And if something kind of tugs at you and you enjoy it, you can say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on this direction, not go as far in this direction. So you could say maybe you were in law school because you were you wanted to be a lawyer and you thought that was the acceptable thing. And then you started doing um, for instance, stand-up or or writing or coaching, and you felt like, oh, this is giving me more feedback that I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying this, this feels good. And you could start to double down on it, and that's where you start building your your metric or hierarchy for success. Exactly. Because a lot of times what we want is a, is really a phantom and like things become more and more complex like the deeper we go into things. And I think a lot of times there's a lot of opportunities like left on the table that we don't... The beginning of this year, I was trying to sell a TV show, had gone out to France, all this stuff, trying to get on SiriusXM. And he, meanwhile, I had so many people who were coming to me trying to learn about frame. And so like the thing is, if I had asked myself, even at the beginning of the year, what does this ideal year look like? It was, oh, getting my show, Brown Guys picked up, right? By Lionsgate or whatever, whoever we're speaking to. And, but I made this, I wrote this book, which has been a deeply beautiful journey. And it's been the thing that I've been most excited about in my life. And so I think a lot of times people overemphasize what they think about at the beginning of their journey. And one of the things I would tell people to do is ask yourself in every moment, how do I make this a little bit better of a decision? I'm going to tell you it's the easiest way to hack self-respect because a lot of times we start off the day, we don't have that much authority over ourselves, but we can make things a little bit better, a little bit better. And by conditioning your mind to always look to make things a little bit better, 
you'll you'll take an opportunity a lot farther, right? Like if you're like, oh, you're in line and there is a um, there's a girl that you, you you think is attractive. How do I make this moment a little bit better? Oh, maybe I'll say, hey, I just thought you're pretty. And then all of a sudden, that's your wife, which actually happened to my dad. That's how my mom and dad really? met. Yeah, so he they just met walked on a tour up bus. to her and said, so, uh, they were on a tour bus in London, and he um, basically was talking about how um, he just basically started talking to my mom, and we ended up like that. We ended up with me they, it, it, have you seen you must see these like videos they're like they go viral all the time where a guy will will just go up to like 20 different girls and like say um hey can i just hold your hand for a second and she's like what and some of them end up holding his hand and you know it's uh it, it, it works like if you kind of break out of the normal rule set and, and you're friendly and and open about it and Exactly. Well, here's the thing is one of the things that I have really discovered is cynicism is pretending like you know how something is going to go before you try it. And so many people, you know, they're listening to this and they're like, yeah, but I don't know if it works. And th what cynicism does is, is, is that it basically traps you in a prison um, that's delusional. You don't know how things are going to go and you don't know how far things are going to go. And so it gives you an excuse not to try. And I really think that a lot of people that I've seen become really good at things are just just like not even optimistic, just like, hey, they trust that the universe, thank you. Um, they trust that the universe can basically is, they can't predict things. And that's exactly the case. I mean, you've lived such a storied life um, from basically just taking risk and trying things out. Like, you know, and that's, the beauty and, of things. And it hasn't always been pleasant. Like, it's like you say, sometimes you think you want things uh, because because you're expected to want them. Mm -hmm. But like, like for instance, this is just a simple example. But two years ago, I was pitching a, a, what I still think is a really great idea for a TV show. Uh, a TV network bought it and then bought the idea. And then a change in management um, kind of, you know, changed how they viewed the idea and and... And I had to decide, do I want to keep pitching the exact same idea? And I realized, no, because once I had done all the pitches, I knew it was a good idea, but once I had done all the pitches and once the network had acquired the idea, I realized, oh my gosh, this is going to be an enormous amount of work and it's going to be two years before it even goes on the air. And I realized the only reason I wanted that particular show was to have other opportunities that I thought I couldn't get on my own. I didn't even want to do that particular idea because of all the amount of work that that would require. And so really asking like asking yourself these questions, what do I want? What what's important to me? And then trying to find easy ways to experiment if this is something uh that really is what you want and is important to you. This helps you learn to say no and yes to the things that help you build self-respect so you can start to now move in the direction of self-respect because now you know what hierarchy you're on exactly and a big problem that a lot of people have with frame control and it, like my experience as a dating coach is too many people try to get they don't number one they don't have enough experience to basically be able to predict things so whenever we're talking about like oh i was able that's because i had like experience in these various things with people but a lot of people who have no experience think they can predict everything that's going to happen and that's just like largely not the case and what you're better off doing rather than trying to predict everything is really commit hard to who you are in that moment and kind of be really present so you can get the most out of that situation yeah i think like I had a situation several years ago, a relationship situation that wasn't working out and I didn't really have confidence in my inner frame in this relationship. Like I was outframed. And so I would call you and 
you would say, okay, here's what this person is trying to do, uh, label it and then do this. And this is what is going to happen next. And this is what's going to happen next. And this is what's going to happen next right down to where, when and who would be the first person to shed tears. And you were like dead on, like in every way. Cause, and I, and I think it was really important for me. It was a big step for me, at least on the relationship side, I had always felt insecure and uh, on that side. And it was really important for me to build kind of an inner frame of what do I really want? What's really important to me as opposed to what's important to society or how people see me or to my friends or whatever, like what's important to me. And that, that was, that's a really important uh, question, but now, okay. So we've been talking about respect. We've been talking about acceptance. What's conditioning. So conditioning is um, basically the process in which we get some, basically our name is conditioned into us by repeated process of being like, your name is James. Your name is James, right? We didn't pick our name. And conditioning is something that happens basically all the time through social conditioning, right? We're conditioned that, you know, the president is somebody to be respected, that um, Harvard is a good school. And so a lot of our reference from the, the world is basically conditioned into us um, haphazardly and by messages from our parents, television, et cetera. And what we really push for is what we call auto-suggestion or self-conditioning, where you choose your own conditioning. And particularly Jocko, I, basically, I listen to Jocko's Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, which is a compilation of short poems all the time to basically give me the mindset of somebody who is a commando, who survived through war, because I want those ideas populating my mind. And the longer you listen to the same simple message, see a lot of people who are in self-help, they're like, oh, read a hundred different books, read a different book a day. No, read one, have one thing that you're reading all the time that's really simple so that it makes the thoughts reflexive. So the longer we're listening to something, the more it gets into our bones. That's why you go to boot camp. You go to boot camp to get conditioned into a, basically a space where you're going to be able to take a large amount of stress. So what we talk about is listening to something over and over again, not just reading it because reading is a newer innovation, right? It's very likely that three generations back, your, your great grandparents didn't know how to read. It's a new thing in the brain. It doesn't hit that same visceral component. When primates listen to vocal commands. So when somebody is telling us what to do, those voices really echo within our mind. And it's about basically filling in the gaps that our parents left for us by understanding, look, everybody's upbringing was imperfect in some way. Now it's up to us to find things to fill in those gaps and do them over and over again, because the younger we hear a message, the longer it takes to unlearn that message. You know, it's so interesting what you say about listening. Cause I've, when I was reading that, that in the book, uh, I've, I realized I've never listened to an audiobook. I love reading. I love reading books, but you're right. Maybe if I, I should at least try listening to one of my favorite books as an audiobook, just to see if it affects me in a different way. Cause you're right. It's more primal, the, 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 the audio component than reading a bunch of strange characters on a screen or a page or whatever. And it, it makes me even think about podcasting. Like I, you know, I listen to my own podcast sometimes, but it's only in the past two months out of six years of podcasts that I've been doing podcasting that I've actually started listening to podcasts and I love them. Like I, if I go to, when I go to the gym, I listen to podcasts. That's, that's how I survive the gym. So it's, it's right. It's valuable to, to listen to stuff. And, um, all right, we'll talk more about conditioning in a second. I think outcome independent, which is uh, the, the fourth pillar of your building your inner frame. This is extremely important. This is basically the, the process versus you know, enjoying the process or, 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 or doing things where you enjoy the process over the, more important than the outcome. 
is really important. Most definitely. So many times what ends up happening when we get into a high stakes environment, we become what's called outcome dependent, meaning that we need a particular outcome. And when we need a particular outcome, all of a sudden we have a very weak frame. James, you have a lot of billionaire friends. They don't need anything from you. So they have a very strong frame of reality because they don't need anything. And they, they just treat me like shit <laughs> as a result. <laughs> and, but like the thing is, is if you can- I wish I had one billionaire friend that didn't treat me like- well, actually, none of them treat me anything. I'm zero. <laughs> I've interviewed 20 billionaires on this podcast. If I, I, actually, I've had good interactions afterwards with one of them. <laughs> so that's, that's fine. Yeah, and a large reason for that is they just have strong outcome independence. They don't need anything. The guys, um, a lot of times in dating coaching, like people be like, you know, don't look needy. When you look needy, you look outcome dependent, which is unattractive. And so how come how you become outcome independent is number one, when you want an opportunity, you think about how it's actually a bad opportunity for you. And that's counterintuitive, but what it makes you do is it makes you devalue the experience so you don't end up compromising on your values, which I'm, everyone's like, oh, I wouldn't do that. When you get in a high stakes situation, a moment that you need to win, you will feel that you will feel that impulse. So understand that. Another thing that I um you gave me a, a, like advice about when I was trading crypto and I had way too much money in the market and I was like I'm not sleeping at night and you're like if you're not sleeping at night you have too much in the market and there was no amount of mental gymnastics I could do to make that not true right and that was a sizable amount so what we recommend is if there is a point where you reach where you're too invested in the outcome you need to actually divest you cannot. You cannot basically say like, oh, this doesn't really matter in the larger scheme of things. And what we really recommend is switching from a, um, a finite game concept of thinking to an infinite game concept of thinking. A finite game is we won or lost a football game. An infinite game is you look at the your whole life as a massive movie and that these wins and losses are just to move the, the game forward, right? Right, and so then like if you uh, uh, win or lose a football game or you know, some contest or some promotion or whatever, it kind of feels bad at first. But again, looking at it in this broader context, what, what, what I've tended to experience is that in every negative uh, event, there's usually some opportunity because a negative event might mean that opportunities are closed off in areas that you thought you wanted to succeed in. So given that now you don't, you, you, what that means is you now have extra time because opportunities were just closed off from you. You now have extra time to pursue other opportunities that might be related or you might use this skill set. And you'll find that there's actually more opportunities because you were losing here. Now there's an opportunity to win over here, you know, in this other area. So like, again, I mentioned that TV show, I was very outcome oriented. I just wanted to have somebody validate this is a TV show. We're going to make it. We're going to put it on the air. But when I, but, but I wasn't very process oriented until I realized, oh, this t having this TV show succeed might be very bad for me. It might mean thousands of hours of work with no actual upside at the end. Like that was the risk I was taking. And so I realized I wasn't being very process oriented. I was only outcome oriented. I only wanted the kind of the superficial benefits of having that particular TV show. And I wasn't looking at the process. And so it was easier to say, okay, well, I don't have to put in those thousands of hours. Maybe I could pitch a different show or a different idea that takes tens of hours or hundreds of hours rather than two or three years of my life. And so I think it's, it, it's so important. And also, again, it's like what you were saying about setting boundaries. I know now what I'm going to say no to. I'm going to say no to things where the process is going to require full devotion to me in only one area of my life. I like to have things going on in many areas of my life and, and, you know, not, 
you know, s- you know, say no when it's when I think that there's I'm justifying an outcome for reasons that have nothing to do with the outcome. Most definitely. And one of the things that really resonated with me that I heard from a, a guy named Owen Cook, um, where it was that in every moment you want to be able to give 100% of your intent, but be free from the outcome. And he said, that's the secret to life. And I honestly really feel that's the case because a lot of time when we're outcome dependent, we won't even try that hard because sometimes we shield ourselves from really giving our full effort because we're like, what if I give it my all and I fail, right? What if I actually try really hard and I find out, frankly, I wasn't good enough or it wasn't for me. And when you're able to really master this and it's a skill, it's not just something like, hey, yeah, learn this once. You have to practice 100% of my intent free from outcome. You know, what, what, would someone who's, what would someone who's really trying to be famous or really trying to be an entrepreneur do? What are the ridiculous things? We, our friendship is because I shot you a, a, a message on Quora, you know, and I was like, hey, like, you know, I'd love to have you on my podcast, right? Right, which is, by the way, a very simple thing to do. Yeah. So, and, but, and you offered value. And yeah, but at the time it felt so ridiculous. Like I, I remember having listened to your uh, your audiobook a few years ago, your best-selling author on the board of all these companies. And, but it was just like, look, I'm just going to hundred percent of my intent free from outcome. Like just, we will cancel out so many opportunities for ourselves by not being free from the outcome. So just give it your all. And then if your all wasn't enough, then it's about who you became, right? Because it's not what you get, it's who you become. You know, it's, it's, it's so important because you, everybody starts off thinking, oh, I want to be a famous this or this or this. And then I like, like, David Goggins is a great example. He didn't set off saying, I'm going to win a bunch of marathons or else it's worthless. I sort of feel like he goes into a marathon not caring if he wins or loses, but if he hurts a lot. Like, I feel like if he's in a lot of pain during a marathon, he views that as a success, whether he won or not. Like, it's, again, doing difficult things of his own volition. He's he's made that entire concept his process. Yeah, well, his, he's he's focused on what I think it builds us the most happiness is character cultivation, right? And that was shown in his last race that he ran. It was a 240-mile race. He was hospitalized at a, a mile 100 and, 120, left the hospital next day, finished the race. No, I mean, doesn't get real credit for it because it's like the race was already over, but that's the kind of guy. He's His character means more than any kind of social approval. And that's what you really want. You want to be somebody that you yourself admire. And when you can cultivate that aesthetic for yourself, having a frame is intuitive. And one of the reasons why having a strong inner frame is so important is you can't deliver those lines later on if you don't if you don't really believe in yourself. They, they will sound like a whisper or they, they just, your voice will crack or they won't have the real weight or you won't be able to stick to those decisions. So it is really powerful when you really resurrect and look at yourself honestly and and pull up those demons and get to your core of what's actually bothering you and then coming up with a solution that we mentioned many in the book on how to fix those problems. So so this this is all like uh, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about the inner frame because uh, I do think if you've kind of mastered this inner frame and by the way it's not a matter of just asking these questions like where are your boundaries what do you really care about you really have to do trial and error and like like you said and you you kind of have to like it took me a long time to realize that when something really bad or negative happens in my life it usually means there's a huge outcome like that's an important part of my frame it's how i deal with negative situations and i've had really painful negative situations in my life and finally i've kind of come the other side to realize this but a lot of these things you build up over the time, but some you can improve and 
bits and bits every single day. Like, you know, the self-respect, what do you, what you do with by looking at yourself in the mirror and even making fun of yourself, by the way, the humor of making fun of the different parts or humorously saying why you, you like these different parts of yourself. You, you say later in the book, that's how you, you know, kind of deframe someone or, 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 or defend yourself against a frame attack when someone's trying to establish frame over you. So it's almost like on a personal level, it's like, your your weaker self is trying to outframe the self you want to become. So you use these defense techniques to fight your your the weaker version of yourself. Most definitely. And so, like one of the things I think it's very important to make fun of yourself once uh, once you you've gone through this process of appreciating yourself because you want to also hear the counter narrative. If you never listen to the counter narrative, you're you basically self delude because and anything that's an advantage for us is, is is a disadvantage. And you want to be aware of that so it can't be used against you. So you're not caught off guard when someone's trying to attack your character. You're like, oh yeah, I, I make fun of myself all the time. I have a lot of resiliency here, and I have an immune system in this capacity. So let, let me ask you a question. Like, let's say you're working with someone on building their inner frame and you say, well, what do you, what do you, what, what do you want to do in your life? And they say, I want to have impact, which I feel is kind of like a meaningless answer. Like a lot of young people say that, oh, I want to do things that have impact. Like, what would you, what would you say to that person? Well, I'd be like, um, do you, well, I would ask how, how are they impacting people right now? Because if you're not doing it right now for free, then you don't want to do it. And that's just the truth. Like, you know, I think that's real. I, by the way, I, I do say that to kids all the time about other things. Like if someone says, oh, I want to be, um, I don't know, I want to be a nuclear scientist. And, and yet they've never read any books about physics or the history of nuclear science or the biographies of the greatest nuclear scientists. I kind of say, well, you probably don't want to be, if you're not dreaming about it already, you don't want to do it. Um, which is a little harsh, but I think that's true. When you find your passion, you dream about it, you read about it, you think about it. Yeah, and you're, you're subconsciously doing it. I, I have been helping, I, I have been writing blogs on human behavior. No no one's in law school and just becomes a dating coach. No one's studying the University of London, studying economics and stuff and just going out and being like, oh yeah, I also want to teach guys this thing that at the time, at the beginning, I wasn't even great at, but I have always been wanted to do this and it's always shown through. And so when it all kind of came together like this, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. A lot of people, they like the idea of being somebody. And so what I would say is, do you like the idea of impact, having impact? And a lot of people have like pedigree, what they want. They want, it to, they want to have impact in a high status way. So they don't just imagine having impact. They imagine being Greta, like the Nobel, getting the Nobel Prize. That's what I want. It's like you, you want the emblems. You don't want the thing. And so I'd be like, you know, you have to be honest with yourself. And I'd say impact's an awful answer. You know, and unless you're actually out there doing something, I don't think you want that. Right. It's like, it's like I had a friend once, uh, this is 25 years ago. She told me, oh, I want to be a painter. I want to be a painter. She got watercolor or she got oils. She got canvas. She got the whole thing. But she said, I want to do it in Paris. I feel like I'll be real creative in Paris. And that's when I'll open all these things. And of course, she never went to Paris. She's a computer programmer in like San Jose right now and has been for the past 25 years. And like, again, it's one of those things where, your your actions, that's a really good way to put it, is that your actions now have to align with what it is you want to do. And if they don't, that's not a problem. It's just you could start testing and shifting bit by bit. You could send an email to someone and see what happens. You could yep. to take little steps. Um, we're a generation of people filled with, I have an existential crisis. I don't know why you... You, an existential crisis comes from not being useful and not having skills. So a lot of people, when they're like, I want to have, it's like, what skills do you have to have impact? How are you being valuable? What are you refining? And 
if you're not making skills for yourself, then then you don't have any leverage. So a lot of times, you know, um, living in New York, you date a lot of people with dreams. And, you know, I've, I've dated so many people where they're like, yeah, you know, I just, there's like no job out there for me. I just want to be able to do this. It's like, you're not good enough at the things you think you're good at in order to do the job you think you deserve. And it takes a lot of time. I think a lot of people have plans, but those plans are dumb. I think you, you should just focus on cultivating a skill and life happens in such a weird kind of way once you develop skills that are valuable to other people. So, so again, all this has been on the inner frame because I think um, that's 50% of the battle. I think if you have like a strong inner frame- A lot then, of it's intuitive. Yeah, then then it's going to kind of happen naturally. Oh, well, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't align with what mm-hmm. I'm saying. But let's just now talk about like, so frame control, which was which is kind of the overall idea of, of this book, the, the Power Bible is such a strong concept and you have write about so many amazing techniques. Uh, and then also there's not only frame control, but there's defending yourself against people who do have strong frame control and who are attacking you with it. These, these techniques are life-changing. And I know this because I've used them. Sometimes I've used them accidentally and I've just sort of learned them over time. Sometimes I've used them because someone like you tells me, oh, try this or try this. And just the combination of both. I it, Plus now reading this book, I have, have more ideas. It's, this, this, gives, this, this, this is an incredibly powerful tool. You even say in here, A, you mentioned how it's dangerous. <laughs> B, uh, you say Brendan actually in one, uh, a section he wrote, this, he says something which is very true, which I've unfortunately noticed over time is that as you use this more and more and move up in status of whatever hierarchy you're putting yourself in, uh, you're going to get a lot of enemies too. Mm-hmm. And I have seen that in spades. Like it is just crazy how your alliances shift, friends become enemies, people who ignored you become friends, enemies become friends everything sort of shifts and you have to be able to roll with that or that will stop you. But, but what's some of the frame control techniques? Well, the first off is like, I really think the the part of the book that I think is really powerful for people to understand is how status and power work and operate and understanding. Like when you're talking about ascending up a hierarchy is just like people don't change their behavior based on what your personality is. They adjust their behavior based on your status. So, and, so a lot of times people don't know that. A lot of times people think, oh, if I'm just nice to this person, they'll treat me better. So, so what do you mean? So it basically is this is like, you're going to treat LeBron. If LeBron James flakes on you, you, if he hits you up a year later, you're still going to hang out with him, right? But you might have a friend who is nice to you all the time that you flake on all the time. And the reason why, why is LeBron James closer to you than them? No, it's because of status and rarity and what you perceive that means about you. And so what you want to do is understand that status, fame, all these things are a spell. They're not actually real. How do you pull yourself out of a status hierarchy? So let's say you get really interested in tennis, okay? Then suddenly the rankings in your local tennis club uh become the way you live your life. Like, oh, this person's ranked number three and I'm only ranked number 10, he's better than me. Or let's say your your status hierarchy is your corporation. Oh, this person's a VP and I'm only a director, uh, so I don't have as much status. How do you kind of like remove yourself from valuing people based purely on status? Here's the thing is you won't be able to. The brain will constantly, our brains are meant to pick up on it because it's life or death. If you didn't recognize status in a tribe, they killed you. Right. So it's imperative. Your brain will always notice. But the key is it's not what you do. It's what you do next. You want to cultivate the awareness. The reason I'm supplicating right now, I am buying into this hierarchy. What would I do if I didn't care? I would just go sit with them. Then you do that. 
But it's about the awareness, not trying to make it automatic because it's not going to be automatic. Sort of like the Tim Ferriss question. I think he asked this in Tools of the Titans. Like, what would you do if, or how would your life change if you had $100 million right now? Just do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but okay. And then another thing is like, I, I've noticed sometimes for me, I can diversify hierarchies. So today, this higher, I'm trying to be good at this. So this hierarchy is a little more important to me. And you talk about this in the book, how to turn, sometimes we're envious of people who are higher in the hierarchy, but try to turn that into admiration. admiration and then you could start to emulate, you know, what they're doing. And, but then I help myself a little bit more. I don't know if this is good or bad, but the next day I might be saying, okay, I'm going to try to get good at this other thing that I've been pursuing. And so now I'm in a different hierarchy. So I find if, I, if I'm not doing well in one hierarchy, I diversify hierarchies a little bit. And one of the things we talk about in the book is different hierarchies credit different things. So we use MMA as an example. You cannot be at the top of the MMA hierarchy without being the best at MMA because that it, it is a hierarchy that only validates objective wins and losses. Not that That's it, right? Stand up, it's kind of in the middle. There's some people who are highly validated stand up, but they're, they're good enough, right? And that's the thing with a lot of art. People try to treat art like it's an objective hierarchy. It's not. Uh, art is a hierarchy built on familiarity, where I'm familiar with you, I'll help you out, and alliances, alliances with galleries, with, with mob bosses, with whoever's buying art, the basil um, people. Those will shoot you up a lot faster than becoming very proficient at your craft because there's not an objective measurement for what art piece is better than another. That's why things in finance is not regularly the most competent people that ascend up sometimes. Sometimes it's just a person who looks the part. I had a friend of mine who was working for GS and made their, made their um, table millions of dollars, they end up hiring on the person who lost them $700,000 that summer. And the reason why, that guy had a British accent. Huh. And he didn't. And that guy fit the aesthetic. So you have to understand that, like, what... What is the higher, what is the cultural capital in the hierarchy that I'm getting ready to interact with, right? What are the things that... Like, I'm not going to mention my stand-up credits in a legal a law interview, right? I'm not going to be like, oh, I opened for Bill Burr. They're going to be like... I've opened for Bill Burr too. Yeah, so, you know. yeah, yeah. They say, hey, but you recognize that's a that's a thing in standard where people be like, oh my gosh, that's really great. That's capital capital in that one area. It doesn't have cultural capital in another area. And so you want to be aware of number one, what are the things that impress within this hierarchy? How can I offer value without being a sycophant? Um, because like sometimes you're like, oh hey, can I can I do anything for you? And do, I'll grab coffee. They never respect you. It's a lot better if you go in as an accountant and be like, hey, man, like, you know, I'm just trying to get better and be around the thing. I can help you with your accounting if you teach me some skills. So, so a lot of frame control is a set, whatever hierarchy you're in, and it might even be just a two-person hierarchy, a relationship, or, or a two-person hierarchy, a sales, you're selling one person to, you, from, you know, you're selling somebody something. How do you, it seems like frame control is all about ascending the hierarchy as quickly as possible. M most definitely. And seeing, like, I remember when I started doing comedy, you think the open mic host is getting ready to be famous, right? Because, but the, that's intuitive because you see them in control in their element. You always want to question, why are the people in power in power? Not, is it unfair or whatever? We want fairness to go out of the question because fairness is, doesn't exist. You want to be like, why are they there? And how deeply are they there, right? One of the things we talk about in the power dynamics section is there are people with um, fixed power, contextual power, and a fluid power, right? Where it's like, Oh, or um, status where it's like, oh, a uh, nightclub owner, that guy in his environment is God. What he says goes, right? The only people who can remove him are the state 
and the banks. And that's going to be a whole nother thing, right? But that night, anything he says goes, right? Then it goes down the manager. And then maybe if you buy a table, you have contextual status. While you purchase, purchase the table, you have like some rights. You're, you can point to the menu and be like, hey, I need this or whatever. But you don't have like legal rights in the place. It's pretty easy to remove you. And then let's say fluid status is like, oh, you go to, I mean, you're hanging out with somebody at a table. And they're like, yeah, hey, dude, I'm kind of bored. Go away. Well, you had fluid status right there. For a moment, you looked really cool, but it was easy to remove you away from power. So you want to see how fixed is this, this person's relationship to power and what, who do they have to satisfy to keep power? I think, I think also changing the narrative of what power is. So again, you might be um, in a corporate hierarchy where you're the assistant vice president and you might say, oh, the vice president worked hard. He, you know, went to all the, his boss's parties and did all this extra work or whatever. But you could also change the narrative and say, you know what, if I break off, if I quit this job and just become a consultant in the industry, that might even make me higher in the hierarchy. So, so, so this company could be a client of mine. My boss could end up being my, my, the, the, the underling of my client and then I've, I've changed the narrative, even though I've stayed in the, in the industry. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think we really hit it off is we're kind of guys who float from circle to circle and everything like that. And it makes it very hard. People are always just like, how much should I respect you? And since they don't know, they either, they usually default higher than they should. And that's because when you go into a hierarchy, you gain benefits, you gain resources, you gain access, but you also lose out on individuality and the ability to do those things. And they, there's a stifling element of hierarchies where um, one of the things that um, it's, uh, we talk about is the difference. There's layers of identity, right? There's like individual identity, like who you are as an individual. There is like a conversational identity. Who am I? I'm in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But I've had this happen where... I'm talking with someone, we're having a great conversation, but when we get in a group, if I, the same thing they were agreeing with me about in one-on-one -on -one conversation, they're no longer agreeing with because they don't feel like they have enough status to basically go along with what I'm saying. And I don't have enough status in that conversation to make them laugh at that thing. Or if, they have other agendas. Other agendas. In, in a new hierarchy. Exactly. So you want to be perceptive of how people change the more people are involved. So, so, so again, so, so this, is, this is the crux of the matter now. So I, I find for myself, a lot of situations... I'm, I feel like I'm good at it. Like I'm, a, I'm good when I'm selling something that I'm passionate about. I, I feel I'm great. Like I'm, I'm great at that. But when I'm in a situation where someone has authority over me or I'm a little, I'm feeling insecure or a little inferior, I tend to be pandering and, you know, and I'm even aware I'm not feeling comfortable. I'm like, I'm like losing a little control of, of what I'm doing here. What are some techniques to, again, not be self-aware because I, I get that, but what, what are some frame control techniques now? Like I'm in, let's say I'm going into the Great. boss. I need a promotion. What do I do? I so, want to raise in a promotion. So let, let's say this is, um, let's say you go into your boss, right? And they, you ask for a raise and then they're like, well, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever reason they don't want to give it to you, right? The first thing you want to do is you want to create silence, you want to create a validation vacuum while maintaining contact and just kind of ponder. So, so, so these are frame control techniques, a yeah. validation vacuum. And a validation vacuum is, so it, it oftentimes it feels like when we're defending ourselves, we are basically an, annihilating frame, but we're actually validating the frame. So the more energetic you are, the more you're giving the frame of descent energy. And so, so like, so like I asked my boss, I say, I'm, Hey, it's that time of year. I'd like a promotion and a raise. He's like, uh, nah, well, maybe next year we'll consider times are, are tough. Uh, now he'll get, or she'll get validation from any argument because mm -hmm. it's fitting the narrative the boss has already thought of. 
So, so you're saying don't validate what, what, what he take just said. Take a few said. seconds. You, you take a few seconds, make them doubt whether what they said. Here's the thing is a lot of this stuff, you know, by creating validation vacuums, people start getting anxious. They're like, wait, what is he getting ready to quit? What is this? Right. And you create a state of anxiety. I mean, we've all been around somebody who, when we're talking and then they just look at us blankly and then you're like, feel the need to keep talking, right? Because as they keep talking, they might give you objections. They might say, they might be like, oh, you know, and I know you've been working really hard this year, right? They might start arguing against themselves. And so you just take a couple of seconds, you know, let them, and you want to not have an angry face, but you want to have a blank face. So, okay, so that's technique number one. Yeah. Silence slash validation vacuum. Validation vacuum. And then for this, you want to get them to explain themselves. So why is this? Not, not, why? And then, so the, once they start giving reasons, they get them to go as long as, because you want them to feel desperate to hear your words, right? They start going a lot longer about like, well, you know, it's just like money's tight or blah, 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 or all this other stuff. And, and what if they just say money's tight? Yeah. So money's tight. You say, so there is no money available to reward good work. Now, if they say there's no money available to validate good work, then you start saying, is the company okay? So now, now you're catching them in a bind, right? They're like, wait, wait, well, no, the company's fine. It's just, so the company is fine, yet there is no extra money to validate good work, right? Then, so let's say they are just jam-packed. They are not going to give you money, and, but, but they want to validate that you have done a good job. You, you've done a good job and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what other ways can we think about of rewarding good behavior, you know? Now, maybe I'm, you explore coming in on terms that are yours. Because you also, there's some people, they can't make the movement, right? Sometimes they, there is no money left, right? Well, maybe you can come in less. Maybe you can work from home more. Maybe, you know, you want to take this big trip out. You want to work remote. Um, maybe in writing, you know, you want to get like, hey, when is this going to happen? Or you want to get them started on the process. So maybe they can't give you the full $1,000 increase right then. Well, that's, let's say, okay, that's fine. Let's do a $250 increase right now and then do it in steps rather than waiting a whole next year. You want to provide them with different ways out that they hadn't been considering, right? You want to constantly be reinventing the frame because too many people go into what I call a binary frame component, a win-lose, a false dichotomy. No, we can't do what you ask. That's it. And you're like, oh, well, do-do-do. And critical, like, let's say they even say, well, you're not ready yet for the promotion in my estimation. Uh, I, I, at, at the very least, you don't want to try to convince them because now you have a weaker frame. Yeah. You don't want to say, but I did this, this, this. When after so-and-so quit, I took on their job. Like, mm -mm. what would you do then if they kind of like invalidate your, your, what you think is your rightful promotion? Well, so number one is, does everybody feel this way? Right. And so, like, number one, you're just like, because then you're going to be, they're thinking like, wait, what does he mean by that? You take your time and you're going to be like, go through specifically why I'm not ready. Right? Specifically. So now they're having to come up with this massive elaborate thing on like, why you're not ready for this. And then now you're going to be like, I'm going to have to think about a lot what you had to say. Right? You take it away from them. Right? You don't have to answer right there. This doesn't have to be something solved right there. It's not a closed thing. But now you have time to basically, number one, they've given you a blueprint of what you need to do to basically be promoted in their eyes, you, you can just do that within a month. And then, hey, look, I've done everything you've asked. There's no reason. You wrote this out. These are the things you said I needed to do. Now you've just been armed with ammunition to basically go in and change the narrative. A lot of times people overestimate what can be done in one conversation when you're there. You can have multiple conversations, right? But a lot of times, a lot of people are working with a nebulous standard. Right. One of the things Andrew Yang, I love Andrew Yang. He says, I love the DNC for telling me exactly what I need to do in order to make the next debates. So I know how to focus my time. 
So that's exactly what your boss just did for you right there. It's like, tell me exactly specifically what it is. Because the more they're like, well, your character, blah, 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 that's not something you can work with. Make them get specific. Okay, so uh, let's take a um, spouse situation. Mm. So let's say the spouse, you know, male or female. Uh, also, one thing I want to mm. say just is make sure you're in neutral rapport tonality. And this is something that's like a lot different. It's something that is in my course, by we can't communicate it over the book, is the way, if you're like, hey, I really do feel, that's called upward tonality. Your voice is going upward in inflection. There, That's already submissive in nature. So you might even be saying the right thing, but they're not going to take it as seriously. And some people's accents are naturally structured to be submissive. I, I tend to do that. I When I'm nervous or feeling insecure or inferior, I tend to go upwards yeah. in tonality and... Uh, I need to avoid that. Yeah, just just make sure it's just like neutral and slow. And um, what I would say is if you notice you're talking fast, pause rather than um, then try to slow down. Because if you're like, no, I just feel like this. And then you're like, but this is the case. And then it sounds weird. But if you're just like, I just feel like I've been doing a lot of really good, good work. And I really feel that that should be, that's all of a sudden you get a different rhythm. Yeah, it makes sense because you, you, whenever you talk to someone who's panicking, they're usually talking fast. Mm-hmm. You're talking to someone who's not panicking, they're usually talking slower. Um, uh, so, so, okay, what's another situation, a common frame control situation? Well, so a lot of times, let's say this is, and we, we talk about this in the intimate relationship section because there's a different rule to intimate relationships and that's not just romantic, that's that's some, somebody we're close to. There are a lot of manipulative tactics that people do and they're not even aware of it. So um, there's like the habitual crier, right? Or the, some, the person who gets belligerent in certain circumstances where whenever you're trying to make them confront a truth about themselves, all of a sudden they get really mad and they're yelling and they're bringing up eight things that you did and now you feel like you're trying to defend yourself on eight fronts. Which this is the same thing. You create a validation vacuum. Number one, you ref- and a lot of times with belligerent people, I'd say get out of the place because they're not going to let you say your argument in a way in which that is compelling. You want to separate from them and write a letter. The reason why you want to write a letter is they number one get the totality of your argument. They're not going to straw man it midway. And you want to create a validation vacuum by leaving whenever they get like this, so that number one they become anxious just to hear from you. Right. So that all and you're not kind of subjected to their overbearing presence. Now, manipulative crier does this, but in the same way where like maybe you're you're talking with someone and they start crying. And I'm not saying every person who starts crying does this, but there are people that anytime you try to bring up something that where they might look bad, they start crying. But whenever they're in the right, they're never crying. You want to create enough space where, number one, you want to watch them cry which will seem like like you're a sociopath, but the reason why is you want to let this emotional state go out. And they're going to probably say things like you don't, like to get you engaged, you don't do any of that. If anything, you just repeat your one point. And whenever people try to bring up a myriad of other things that you're doing wrong in, a, in an argument, you say, those might be true, but we're talking about this right now. You want to keep it focused on the topic at hand. So I think, I think so, so, so this is very important because this is really, so in kind of a romantic or relationship situation or an argument, oftentimes someone's trying to argue with you or maybe you're the one trying to arguing and someone, if they can't win in one direction, and I use win in quotes, if they can't win in one direction, they'll change the topic and say, well, but then there was this situation. And then you say, well, no, no, I wasn't even there. Then. No, but then there was this situation. So I think there you're, you're, what you were just saying is important, but, but your labeling technique is really important where you just, and this is from the book where you just simply say, you know, 
okay, it's okay if we change the topic, but could we like, what's, what are we talking about here? Like, are we talking about the first thing you brought up or is there something bigger, like labeling what's happening and pointing out that topics have changed instead of letting them sort of drift wherever they go in, in a sense, controlling the frame. I think that labeling technique is really critical. Yeah. Just, and also keeping the conversation focused. That's like the really hard part Whereas where, um, one of the things we recommend in the book is do not try to solve the reason for a fight during a fight. That's going to sound so con- counterintuitive, but the the uh, a fight is actually a frame battle gone wrong. And what happens is, number one, a fight is meant to dominate the other, not to kind of come up with a solution. And so you're going to... So sp- what are you supposed to do? They're fighting, and you just said, hey, are we... Did you just change the topic? Can we get back to the original well, topic? How do you, how do you kind well, of... Well, a fight needs two people to participate in. So mm-hmm. when you feel that you are getting in a place where you are fighting then that means, hey, we're getting heated. There's nothing going to be solved right now. Let's take some time, come back to this. And what I suggest doing in this part is you want to become them. What I call it, and not just, oh, imagine their side, which is a superficial way of doing this. No, you want to look at the situation in a way in which where you become them, where you you imagine what it's like to grow up like them, their incentives, um, basically what books that they read, the ideology that they buy into, what their friends might say, all of these things. And you want to argue against yourself. So you understand with deep empathy where they're coming from, right? Then what you want to do is then build your argument on top of that. And the problem that a lot of people have is they'll think about the other point of view. They won't think about their own, go back and then be like, yeah, you're 100% right. No, you have you have validity. You want to think about your point of view last. You want that to be the last thing you think about before you go in. So on- part of this is, part of frame control is validating their frame as much as possible. So, so I'm kind of going back and forth, I guess, between a validation vacuum when they're too off course you feel and you're trying to just calm things down. Or just even know what you're actually arguing about. So sometimes, so the example, and you, you call this the, 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 the right reason and the real reason, right? Like, and I use the example in the book, let's say you have a son who's like, hey, I really need a car to drive from school to work. And you're like, oh, I can solve that easily. I can just drive you. You know, I'm free at that time. And all of a sudden it's manifesting into this huge fight. And you're like, what's the issue? Well, the thing is, is that he, if you're imagining being a teenage boy, he probably wants time alone with his girlfriend, the freedom that comes with the car, the cachet, the insecurities. So you can actually talk about the real issue that he wants freedom and autonomy, not necessarily that you he needs someone to drive him from school to work. So, so- I feel like there's there's so many interesting situations and there's so many specific techniques that you bring up that are so powerful and and what was great was a lot of them I recognized as oh I've I've used this once or twice in this situation but actually seeing them written down and putting a name to the technique makes it easier to have it like literally right there in my head in my arsenal of of frame control techniques and again it's good for ascending a hierarchy it's for, good for making a sale um, uh, but by the way, Steve, if they, if they ring the doorbell, can we keep them out there for like five more minutes or 10 more minutes? Yeah. Um, so what would be, let's say it's a, let's say it's a sales. I'm, I'm making a sale. I call you up. Hey, uh, you know, I thought you might be, I, I noticed you just bought a car. Maybe you want a better car insurance. Like what do you, what do you think? Number one, you got to meet them where you're at. They're at right. Number one, you don't want to go in trying to sell up top because like that's a, they don't trust you. You want to establish trust in a sale, right? You want to establish trust. Yeah. Basically by, Hey, what's up? Understanding where they're coming from. Hey, what's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just, 
you know, you're on a list for health insurance. I mean, a health insurance thing is not something I have personal experience with, and there's a lot of dynamics you can't control on the phone. But it, let's say you're it, you're in the middle of a sale and you're talking to somebody and you're trying to get them to purchase something. Number one, you want to find out their pain points. How does your thing actually solve their problem? So many times people get obsessed with how their product is a standalone product, and you should get how this the, this works, right? And the large part, like you know, when I'm selling the frame control thing, I'm not like your frame control is this is the best course ever. It'll change your life. I'm like you know. Um, how great would it be to make 10% more money every year, right? Like, you know, if they mentioned that, like, oh, you know, I'd like a bigger house or whatever like that, or like, oh, I'm kind of lonely. I'm not having the relationships I want or whatever like that. You find out where you, they basically sell themselves on your product, right? So if they're not having the relationships they want, it's like, why do you think that is the case, right? And they're like, oh, I don't think girls like guys like me or whatever like that. It's like, uh, you know, I think that's a, you're having a weak frame about yourself and your own concept of value. If you don't think you're valuable, why should someone else think you're valuable, right? And then you start working from that pain point and how your product solves their problem, right? Where they basically get to explain to you why they need to buy your product. And you can always appeal back to that. So, so again, this book, there's so many incredible sections. I feel like we've only made a, a, a dent in it. And what I like is that there's so many techniques and there's so many permutations of the techniques. Like every situation requires like a different set of these tools. But the, the, the first part is building that inner frame. Then there's frame control. Then there's um, how to defend yourself against a frame attack, which happens a lot more often than people think. Like you're always under attack in every situation, I feel. And then uh, and then there's also discussion about being a frame addict. What do you do about that person who constantly needs to be the center of attention? It's hard to to stay in a room with them or, or and you don't want to be that person too as you, as you learn these techniques. But I like this one quote in the book. Uh, you say, uh, college, sorry, courage requires fear. You must be afraid of something to experience the virtue of courage. When you take steps towards what you're afraid of, you're guaranteed the gift of courage, which provides you, which provides you with euphoric feelings that give you a strong frame. Acting courageously is bold and being, sorry, acting courageously is bold and being bold is an integral part of having a strong frame. What I like about that, it reminds me of writing because I always tell myself if my writing is going to be unique and interesting, I can't hit publish unless I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. And it's almost the same with that quote, like you kind of have to constantly stretch the comfort zone. Otherwise people are going to treat you. If you're always in, let's say that the friend zone is the same as your comfort zone and your relationship with the person. So if you don't stretch that comfort zone, people are always going to treat you like a friend when you want something different. Most definitely. And also a lot of times we um, shy away from things because we're afraid what we might actually find out. Right. So a lot of times people, when they're, a lot of times people confuse patience with cowardice. And courage allows you to actually earn the virtue of patience. Because if you're not courageous, you're just going to be like, oh, I'm patient, but you're actually just a coward. You're not actually going out and taking those opportunities and you're basically writing it off as another virtue. But when you are courageous, when you actually have done things and have been reckless in certain circumstances, when you say, actually, I think here I need to be patient, that actually means something. Right, and also, again, you could, if something scares you, if it's too big of a jump, Take a smaller jump. Just mm -hmm. do something. Something. Something in that direction of fear. Because you could do, look, I could just step on an ant and that's a little bit safer for me than stepping on a wolf. But it's like, I still might be afraid of an ant, but it's a small, a tiny microscopic step. You could always do something microscopic. Yeah, so many times people get caught up with the perfect move. And number one, the perfect move doesn't exist, especially close to the beginning. What you want to just do is a better move. And sometimes, yeah, the better move requires courage. That's the cost you pay. But also courage gives you self-respect, 
right? The more courageous you act, the more you respect yourself, the more you can ask yourself to do. And so the, the thing is, is that it's such a virtuous cycle where all these virtues kind of feed each other in a really symbiotic way. So, okay, Bill, how this is, first off, I even told you when you got here, uh, this is one of the few books that has blown me away. I felt like my IQ was rising while I was reading it. And again, I've recognized so many of the techniques and, and I saw new ones that I could think of situations to use it in or ways in which I've been failing in different interactions in my life. Uh, how do people get the Power Bible? So um, the Power Bible, you can get it um, at framescholar.com uh, where basically- Framescholar.com. Framescholar.com. And basically it's that, it comes as a part of my, my um, frame control masterclass, um, which basically goes through all these lessons and even more things that we couldn't even include in the book. And um, yeah, and there's also- Like what? Like what couldn't you include in the book? Um, like for, for example, my voice course, um, which is basically a lot of people have weak frames because they don't have a voice that tells them they should have a strong frame. That's something I can't communicate within a book. Um, I also have exercises. I have my mentorship community um, uh, run through a diagnostic of an FAQ. And then there's a lot of what I said, where it's like a lot of a message of something is communicated through like the delivery of it, like the power of that delivery to to the individual. So, so they get the Power Bible. With voice course, the, my discipline course on basically how to go from where you're at to implementing all these different rules, the nine layers of discipline, with also a course with 183 lessons and the book. What's well, like an exercise that's in the course that's not in the book? So you um, some exercises in the book. So, so the one of the things basically um, on I go through deeply on the voice course part component of it on how to represent your voice and how to slowly get it deeper. Like if you listen to my first podcast with James and listen to it now, there's actually a massive difference, and that didn't happen automatically. And I go through how to diagnose these things, or basically um, how to basically I talk about not analogizing, letting people analogize your arguments. Right? It was something I didn't mention in the book because it's kind of petty, and the book is kind of me like meaningful. But if someone tries to analogize your argument they're they're changing it so if you're like don't know that analogy doesn't fit and an, you take back the power because a lot of people try to no no it's more like this no now you're giving their analogy frame so, so it's related to the zoom out zoom in techniques exactly but maybe they're also trying to slightly change the topic at the same time and you're you're labeling it exactly you have to practice recognizing that exactly and then there's just like a lot of just subtle nuances where i go to, through a detailed thing of how to get a job you don't deserve how to get more money how to leverage more of these things how to get more um how to get dates how to get out of friends when i i have all these faqs that aren't included in the book that are included in the course and also just like audio commentary for longer form videos so it's 183 lessons and um yeah it's it just honestly as a whole package it's just going to revolutionize your life and uh i have to ask this but well so framescholar.com what what can we do for listeners of this podcast right now because i really think this is valuable i i love the book you know i'm aware of the course i know i i love the course uh i want people to get this uh, what what can you do for them? Uh, I'm going to negotiate it, right now. I have I have frame right now. Yeah, he has frame. It's my his podcast. podcast. <laughs> we're in, we're in his house. It's great art, social proofing. Um, yeah, dude, let's let's do thirty percent for your 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 um your base. Like, I mean, you're the big reason why a lot of this has happened. So, what can, is there? Are you going to set up a page like Frameschooler.com? Yeah, and and the coupon code will be there. Um, and it'll be Altitude Podcast. Okay, Altitude Podcast. Can you set up a page like Frameschooler.com slash James? Yes. Okay, so that'll just, it'll be, then you'll automatically recognize, like, these are all people from James' podcast and yep, stuff. Yeah, most definitely. Okay, uh, I think this is so valuable. I want to have you on again to, to talk about more. There's so many different situations. Uh, get Brendan uh, on. Brendan. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, Brendan Brent, on. Brendan went, went from being, um, just to put it, how powerful this guy is, went from being homeless 
to making over six figures while doing comedy. I mean, he he is just one of the most well, the smartest people we both know. And yeah, just, I think would be an excellent guest. Yeah. And this has always been like an, an odd friendship for me in the sense that how old are you? I'm 29. So you're 29. I'm 51. And yet I've called you. We've both called each other, but I probably called you even more for advice than you've called me. Now, admittedly, I've given you big, huge, huge, valuable pieces of advice in one go yep. at different times. But like you've given me lots of tactical advice in like a hundred different situations. So it's been really like, I'm so happy to see how this book uh, has how you've written it. And then, and then the course, like, this is going to be a reference. The, the, the book and course is gonna be a reference point for me, uh, in just my own persuasion parts of my life and frame control and moving around. Like I'm a, I'm a big believer in how do you skip the line in hierarchies? And a lot of these techniques, I'm going to basically steal from you and try to write in my next book. Although, you know, not as, as well as you've done here, just take bits and pieces that I personally use, but, uh, it's so valuable at the very least if, if, okay, here's another thing. If someone goes to framescholar.com slash James, can they get, you, you said you have 183 lessons. Can they get a couple for free just to see what it's like? Yeah. So I actually have three webinars on there that basically cover a lot of what we covered in here, but specifically on how to make more money from frame control, how to base, um, how, which is like a 50 minute thing, how to have a better romantic um, life from frame control and how to get the body of your dreams, which a lot of people don't think is about frame control, but it's really about holding frame with yourself. And so those three videos I have on there and I'll have like um, a couple short, like little um, tactic videos on there as well. Excellent. Well, Bill Batit, uh, frame control expert, lawyer, dating coach, comedian, world traveler you're heading out of the country in a few weeks right yeah for forever what's uh, gonna happen um so I'm, I'm going to i'm moving to france and one of the primary reasons is i'm writing a book on the metaphysics of identity and basically transcending culture tribalism and our multiplicity of identities and a lot of french philosophers and french sociologists have written about it and i've gotten to a point where I no longer want to read it the read it in a language that's not the native language because I think that there's something sometimes lost in translation. And so I wanted to go there, number one, learn how to speak French and everything like that, and then get access to the culture that produced the thinkers that have been kind of thinking about a lot of this stuff that we haven't necessarily been thinking about in Anglo-Germanic, um, kind of the philosophical tradition. Well, good luck on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> and, and come back soon because uh, it's better when, when you're here. And... Uh, Framescholar.com slash James. They can get all this stuff. Power Bible, uh, all the free webinars, um, access to your course, your mentorship community uh, or membership, whatever it is. And uh, thanks again for coming on. This, this is so valuable. And and the the book was really uh, uh, fantastic. I'm really, I, really I, happy I read it. I, I, I truly appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thanks again, man. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.